We've been going over the Gospel of Mark, and what we've been realizing that as Jesus reveals himself more, in this particular chapter, chapter 5, we, we specifically see his power and just how powerful Jesus really is. That he has enough power to still a storm by the power of his word. He has enough power to make demons cast out whole legions of them, a thousand of them, just like that. There is truly no rival before Jesus. And now I believe it kind of intensifies where Jesus now meets, meets quote-unquote, his match as he comes to face with death itself, a death of a child. What will Jesus do? What will happen to Jesus' power here? And so with that context, uh, we turn now to Mark chapter 5, um, and our focus will be on verses 35 through 43. But I'm going to read start, starting from 21 to give us a, a better context from last week. And once you find your places there in your Bible, on your phones, uh, can you please stand and rise with me if you're able for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she had twelve, she was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. 
Amen. Those girls are reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer? Lord, as we come before you, we pray that you will give us hearts of understanding that in this world, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of wounds we carry and what to do with those things. So we ask that as you proclaim yourself as wonderful counselor, almighty healer, work on our lives even now as we tune our hearts towards you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Kobe Bean Bryant died, I was shocked. No one in their right minds thought that this, something like this could ever happen. This guy was a superstar, an NBA legend. He was known for something called the Mamba mentality, which means that he was able to face whatever adversity and trials there were, and he was able to, to power through it. In the eyes of so many people, he was inspiring. And you never would have thought someone like him could die the way that he did. And what made his death even more tragic is that nine other people died with him in that terrible helicopter accident, including his daughter, Gigi Bryan, who's 13 years old at the time. Her, just her as a person reminds me of Jarius' daughter, who's just 12 years of age. I think when you hear these stories of death, it's always a reminder the life at the end of it all is tragic. Life is a tragedy. No matter how you parse it, life is a tragedy because of the presence of death in it. And life goes on, but that's not the same thing as finding healing. See, in the tragedy of death, or in the tragedy of death, in the tragedy of our lives, God comforts us through those things. He doesn't just let life move on. But there's a promise that he will comfort us through the tragedy. And here's what I mean by this. We're just going to look at three things about our, our text today. First is when God seems to come late. Second is the commotion, the crises of our lives. And last of all, where can we find our comfort? Okay, those three things. When God seems to come late when there's a commotion in our lives, and where is the great comfort we can have? Let's look at the first part, coming late. So Jarius pleads before Jesus, and his little words are in verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And that specific language means to the point of the extreme. So the image I want us to have in mind is the girl is in the ICU, there's not much time left. So you have to hurry. Every second counts. So Jesus agrees to go. And as they're making their way, right, uh, to go and heal Jarius' daughter, a woman with a discharge of blood is there asking for Jesus' healing. Or actually, Jesus spends time to heal this woman that had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
And I don't know how long this whole exchange took. Maybe it would took like a couple of minutes. Maybe it took an hour. No one knows. As far as Jarius is probably concerned, this is taking forever. Like my daughter is at the point of death. We have no time for this woman. Just wrap things up, Jesus. And right as Jesus is ending things and healing this woman, verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus is too late. Jesus didn't pull through. He's too late. But I want you to consider something. Can someone who is omnipresent ever be late to anything in our lives? Can the God who is omnipresent ever be late? Maybe time is not the issue that Jesus is dealing with here. Maybe there's something else. You know, I was at the uh, Berkeley Farmer's Market last weekend with my family, and uh, we were, uh, mind, I was minding my own business, uh, sampling the produce that was there, listening to good street music, and Kathy asks me, as she looks at me, she tells me, are you okay? I said, I'm, I'm, I tell her I'm fine, why? And she says, well, you're, you look miserable. And I let her know that's just my normal face, that's how it is. And you know, I was, I was just enjoying my time, actually, I tell her, and I was reflecting on, I was reflecting on what uh, my marriage counselor was telling me. I was reflecting on why there aren't as many seagulls as there should be at this farmer's market. And I was thinking about, where's Chris Paul gonna go? You know, like deep thoughts in my mind, and I was enjoying my time thinking about it. Fast forward to this past week, I, I tell our counselor about everything that happened, and he says, you know, Amos, it's really great that you're such a reflective person, and I, I think that's wonderful about you, but sometimes you have to realize um, you're not there to date your thoughts and your concepts. You're there to date your wife. And my wife felt so understood when he said that. She's like beaming and like nudging me on the side, and, and, and I realized, huh, like, how often do we treat our relationship to God this way? He's my concept. He's my ideas. We, we talk so much about meditation, but are we actually present with him as we do life? I, we say that Jesus is late, but maybe he's not running, maybe he's not uh, uh, living according to time, at least ours. Maybe there's something else. Because look at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the rulers of the synagogues, do not fear, only believe. See, in your Bible, some of you might have this footnote over that word of, um, of overhearing, and it translates into actually just ignoring. Jesus is ignoring the situation. Like, the little girl is dead. That's the announcement. How do you ignore this? How do you tune this out? But perhaps what Jesus is, is ignoring isn't so much that what Jesus is ignoring, rather what he is actually being present to. God is at work. As I, like, I've been thinking about our church and as a church replant, there's so much uh, uh, that goes into it. And, and my prayers have been about how, God, please grow our church. Please grow it. I've been asking this. And I realize as I've been asking this, 
I don't know if that's the best thing that God does this. Because I realize if what's the point in growing as a church with having more people come if we're not ready, if we're not mature enough to receive people? Because if we're not mature and we have baggage, all we're doing is handing off baggage to other newcomers. The newcomers receive our baggage, then they spread the baggage to somewhere else. It's a tough lesson for me to accept. But I realize this is what God wants, wants for us, at least in my prayers, at least in my reflections. God's never late. We just expect him to show up in a certain way for us. At least I know I, know I do. There's certain ways that I want him to show up, but maybe perhaps what God is being present to is working on our hearts. And yet as Jesus sees and assesses this problem, this situation, he says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, which means Jesus understands the scariness of our lives or the trials and tribulations that we go through. Only believe is a call for us to be present with God. That means letting go of how we think God should show up in our lives and simply being being present to what God is actually doing. Do not fear, only believe. This verse reminds me of a line from the poet uh, Rumi where he writes the following line here. The side of you that sees that you are afraid isn't afraid. The side of you that sees that you are afraid isn't afraid. I find this line to be the closest thing to what having faith is. That every, in every crisis and crossroads of our lives, we all face something called a mini-death. Because if death ultimately re- uh, represents the end of all things, we all go through these little mini-deaths, crisis moments that can really affect and change us forever. We all go through it. Because to accept change is to accept mini-deaths deaths in our lives. Whether it's from entering into age, getting older, you're ending being younger. You enter into sickness, that means an end to your health. Many deaths here. And it's scary for us to all face. And yet God's call into our lives is, do not fear, only believe. His promise is to be with you, but also to receive you on the other side of things to receive us. How do you make yourself more present with God? You bring him into the commotions of your inner life, which brings us to the second point here, commotion. When God doesn't seem to show up and he shows up late, the message is is exactly what Jarius' men uh, uh, explain. It sounds like this. Why trouble the teacher any further? See, that word for trouble literally means to harass. Like, don't give Jesus your problems. He's got better things to do. Don't trouble the teacher any further. But trouble is the very reason why he is there to begin with. It's because the fact that we have troubled hearts, why Jesus came down to us. So Jesus allows this small group of disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, along with Jarius and his wife, to follow Jesus. And look at the direction here. They head 
directly into where the trouble is at. They enter the house, and Jesus sees all the commotion. People are weeping. They're wailing loudly. And the thing is, for Jewish culture, they have this robust robust system of grieving. That for them, they had this three, three stages of grief, of mourning. For the first seven days, the family and the closest relatives, they would stay home to receive the condolences of relatives and close friends. And then after those seven days are up, uh, 30 days would be spent just mourning. And they wouldn't attend any festal, festive social gatherings in that time, nor would they travel. They would just strictly spend 30 days to mourn. And once those 30 days are up, then they could resume back to normal life if they wanted to. That's the Jewish way of grieving. Compare this with California law, or just probably U.S. in general, that all across the states, you can fact check me if I'm wrong, but legally speaking, we are allowed five days of bereavement leave. Five days. Compare that to the 30. I don't think this is just, you know, just by a coincidence, because in our Constitution, happiness is an inalienable right. Happiness is legalized, but grief isn't. So we have to go. So how's it going for us, for an entire nation that uh, emphasizes our happiness? Well, the polls are out. The Gallup poll from last May says that uh, Americans, or at least for American adults, the rates for depression is at an all-time high. It's at an all-time high. There's what our inalienable rights do to us. Happiness isn't the problem. It's our process of grieving that is. We've normalized happiness, but somehow we say that grief, it's abnormal. So you should make the sadness go away as fast as you can. Yet here, God is able to sit with us in our grief. In light of all this commotion, Jesus asks, why are you making this commotion and weeping? Man, talk about failure to read the room, right? Like if I were to say this at a funeral, people would be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you weeping? Why is there this commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Man, like to to toy with like the parent's heart this way, I can only imagine Like, what is Jesus doing here? It seems so insensitive. And yet what I believe is happening is Jesus is doubling down on his previous statement of verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus is raising the stakes so that he makes it no other way. uh, Either you believe everything that he says and all his promises will come true or he is an absolute fool. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground here. That's what he's doing as he raises the stakes. And so how do people respond as they hear what Jesus is saying? It says, they laughed at him, verse 40. People laughed. It's not one of comic relief or it's not one of those polite laughters to kind of like ease the awkward situation. No, this laugh is direct mocking. There's no way, Jesus. There's no way any of this can happen. As Jesus raises the stakes of his promise, 
it also raises the incredulity, the doubts that arise with it. And you can either be like the crowd, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any, uh, any, anymore? Or you can believe. See, in this whole sequence, the father and mother, they say absolutely nothing, which I find intriguing. Jesus removes the commotion of the crowd of mourners and people who are weeping, and he brings the mom and dad and the three disciples, and they come closer to the trouble. They enter the room, and they come face to face with death death itself. And I got to tell you, I don't know how these parents are keeping it together. I don't know how they can't say anything. Because when I think about this, right, I think about the fact that for, uh, for a couple, I, I mean, like a month or two, I've been asking all of you to pray for Pastor Sung and his family. And, and thank you for praying with me for that. Like, he's one of, my, uh, one of the first pastor friends that greeted me when I moved into the Bay Area. And I was looking forward to, like, um, building upon that friendship and just to hear this kind of news, you know. And, and he's not even your friend. So the fact that you pray, with, pray for him with me, I... I like sincerely thank you for that. But the prayers, you know, I, I, I plead for the cancer to be removed. I plead that somehow a miracle can happen. And then when I start praying about his kids, I get so mad. I throw in curses there. I follow up with, you could change this, but you're not. Like, what's going on? I get mad. And until I've exhausted all those words that I bring up against God, and when I'm too tired for the words, I just have to end with, but you have to know better, right? You've got to know better than me. Why bother the teacher any longer? That's the whole reason why the teacher is there. That's the whole reason why Jesus comes, because he says, I want your trouble. Give it all to me. Lay it all on me. There's this theologian named John Stodd, and he, he, he said when, it's, when we plead before God, it's like a child that sits on his father's lap and just bangs against the father's chest saying, you could change all this and you can do something about it. But the kid still has to realize if the father's lap weren't there supporting him, he couldn't even raise, the, uh, raise all, these, uh, all these things to begin with. It's the father that still sustains him. And that's what pleading before God is like, to trouble him with our troubled lives. That as we plead and bang against God and say, you could change all this, why aren't you doing this and that? Yet God is still merciful to give us the strength and energy to do such a thing. He welcomes it. If anything, that's the very reason why he is there for us. to bring us into the trouble, bring, bring our troubles to him. See, as you do all this and you become exhausted and all you can do is just believe, I feel like that's his game plan there. As you're pleading and pleading and pleading, you just become so exhausted and pleaded for everything that you're pleading for that all you can do is believe. Not because it's your best option, but because it's the only option that you have. With every commotion that troubles us, God promises at the end of it all, 
I will comfort you. Which brings us to the last point here, comfort. See, in this confrontation of death, Jesus' automatic reaction is to reach into death. He grabs a little girl's hand and says in his native tongue, Talitha kumi, which in Aramaic means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Just like that, the little girl wakes up as if she came, uh, woke up from a bad dream. Like death never happened. My daughter, she's incredibly good at pretending to sleep. So even when you try to wake her up, when she's pretend sleeping, like you could tickle her armpits and she won't laugh or anything. You can say a joke and she won't even smile. Just stone cold sleeping face, right? And one night she slept on our bed and I wanted to remove her. So like she wasn't waking up, even though I told her. So I scoop her up. I put her in our bed, right? And I tuck her in and I do the same nighttime routine, even though I'm so exhausted. And I tell her, you know what? I love you. And I'm about to leave, but I have to ask her, do you love me too? And she scrunches up her nose and she nods yes and she gives me a kiss. And like that little moment, that little interchange, it brought life from an exhausting day. This little girl, she wakes up. What I think people don't realize is that so do the parents. They wake up to faith. And the exhaustion of their troubled lives, they witnessed the power and the tender care of Jesus as a shepherd. Talitha, literally, it transliterates in the Hebrew as little lamb. And in Isaiah 40, verse 11, it, uh, it describes God in this way where it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs, Talitha, in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That in our exhausted and troubled lives is a God who calls us, little lamb, come here. Little lamb, come into my arms. The only comfort that you can have in this world is that, is, is that as we live in a life of tragedy, that the tender care of God as our shepherd promises to turn our endings into the next chapter. Like little lambs, he promises to carry us close to his heart, and he's going to make death seem like sleep. Only because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus reached into death And as his hands, as he reached into death, his hands led him to the cross where the wages for sin is death. But he didn't lay down for long, but rose again like he was just fallen asleep. And that whatever forms of death that you may experience now, whatever prayers that you are pleading before God, in whatever ways that you may find your hearts wounded, whatever ways that you may be troubled, there is a God who calls out to us and simply says, my little lamb, come here. Do not fear, only believe. And if that's what Jesus presents to us, what other option is left? Would you pray with me? 
Father God, in light of all the things that we can struggle with in our lives, we thank you for the fact that sitting in, in the midst of our tragedies and our griefs and the things that sadden us and worry us, it's not troubling to you, Father. And so, Lord, as we come before you, will we practice presence with you? That with everything that troubles us, Lord, we lift to you. We lift up to you knowing that you know exactly what to do with it. Because at the end of the day, we are as helpless as little lambs. And your great promise is to scoop us up and to hold us in your arms. Like we live our lives trying to not feel like a child, trying to not be treated like a child, but at the end of the day, we're your child, and that's what really matters. So scoop us up. Hear our cries. As we bring our troubles to you, bring your comfort towards us as we look at the cross. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.